do that. I wanted to take a week to do something a little bit different with you. There's a particular thing that has been brewing in my heart for a long time, and sometimes when God speaks to you, it just kind of bombards you from every different direction, and everywhere I have turned over the last couple of weeks, different people have said, hey, I think God's saying this, and hey, I think God's saying this, and I've read something, and it's just all been about the same stuff. Um, And I wanted to just take a a week just to talk really from from my heart about... um, one particular topic, and it kind of it kind of stems from this place that that I believe, and uh, church leaders are increasingly saying all around the world, like this is a historic and important and a pivotal moment for for the global church, and particularly for the church in, in the West. Uh, over the last couple of years, we have seen like unprecedented change on every level of our society. This accelerating sense of things being different, things about how we work, our relationships, how we shop, how we hang out with people, how we even do romantic relationships, how we worship, everything is completely different. And it's not that it just changed, but this pandemic has brought about like an acceleration of things that have been changing for a very uh, long period of time. And because of that, I really believe that it's a historic moment for the church to wake up and to be who it's called to be. And I actually think that for, for individuals and for families and for local churches, this is going to be a pivotal moment where for some of us, we're going to make choices in this moment, in this season, which is going to set us on a pathway for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And we're going to say that really mattered because we made choices that were foundations that really saw us through the next season of what happened in the world. But I also think, and I'm I'm not being pessimistic, but I also look out and I think there are also going to be churches and individuals and families who are going to make choices in this season that might actually have the opposite effect as well. That I think there are actually choices that we can make now, which might mean in 10 and 20 and 30 years time, we're not still hanging out with Jesus. And I'm, I'm not here to panic anyone, but I want to talk this morning a bit honestly and openly about where I think the challenges are and what what the enemy is trying to do and what the Lord wants to do in this season. And I'm saying it not, by the way, just because I'm, you know, had too much cheese last night, but I'm actually saying it because before uh, 25 to 50% of all uh, people in the US who are part of a physical gathering, a worshiping gathering of other Christians called a church, between 25 and 50% of them are no longer part of a church right now. Now, however you look at stats, that is an absolutely scary and a crazy number. And for some of us, it's been a question of safety, and I just want to honor and say I think it's been great and really important that we, over the last couple of years, have had these seasons of fasting, our togetherness to love and respect and protect the world around us. I think it's been great. And fasting, of course, is for a purpose and it's for a season. I think for some, it's been a question of like, hey, we kind of got our Sundays back and that's fantastic. And we got our Wednesday nights back and that's fantastic. And now I don't know if we want to get up on a Sunday morning and be there or or whatever it might be. And hey, like even as your pastor, there are the occasional Sunday mornings when I wake up and I just think, I could get a coffee and I could I could grab a croissant and I could sit in front of the Premier League. That would be that would be great. And and I get it. But I'm not I'm not here to, to diss either of these things. But but increasingly the story I hear goes more along these kind of lines. I used to be part of a church. Like I used to hang out with Christians, but but I have seen some things over these last years that have deeply hurt me. I have seen things happen under the name of Jesus. I've seen leaders say things. I have seen leaders fall from grace. I have seen things out in the world which people have put a Christian banner all over. And actually, if that's what Christianity is in the future, I don't know anymore if I can be with those people. I don't know anymore if I can call those my brothers and sisters. I don't know anymore because I feel hurt, because I feel lonely, because I feel rejected. And so I'm going to hang back. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to 
watch online or I'm going to find my podcast or I'm going to find my little virtual tribe and that's what I'm going to do. And hey, I'm not in any way knocking those things either because I think there's a great place for that, but I, I have to be really honest with you. And when people say that to me, my heart slightly breaks. It breaks because not just for the pain that people honestly are carrying, and some of you have walked in this morning and you are carrying really serious pain for things that you have felt and heard and have been done to you or said over the last couple of years, but it also breaks my heart because inwardly my spirit says this, oh no, like, I, don't, I don't know if they're going to make it. Like, I, I don't know if this is going to end well for, for these guys. Because actually, if they're going to walk through the next 10 years, if they're going to walk through whatever the world has got in store for us next, then they're going to need some brothers and sisters around them. They're going to need some people to love them. They're going to need some people to hold them accountable. And if they think they're going to do it on their own, I'm just not sure it's going to work. And so this morning, I, I want to I really just kind of drill down into something that you know, I think the Lord wants to say to us about the sense of being um, together. And, and my premise really is this, is that the local church is God's hope for the world. It is the very mechanism by which God has given himself to the world by his Holy Spirit through us to transform cities and nations and lives and heart. And because the local church is not an organization or an institution or a denomination or some structures or branding or a logo or whatever, it's actually a bunch of followers of Jesus being committed to one another, being committed to God and being committed to the world around them because that's what the church is. Then actually for the church to fulfill its very purpose, then it has to be full of people who are committed to one another committed to love each other, committed to love God and to commit love, committed to love the world around them. And for that to be true, then actually the relationships that we hold within the church have to be full of grace and they have to be full of love and they have to be full of mercy and they actually have to be full of forgiveness and repentance. Because if we don't get that bit right, then we've got nothing else and nothing else will hold together. And so this morning, let's talk, let's talk boldly, let's talk bravely about forgiveness and repentance and love and grace and mercy. So I'm going to ask Lisa Ann um, to run up, and she's uh, going to read for us our reading, which is going to be from Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. If you've got it in your Bibles, that's really great. Um, if not, it'll be up on the screen, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Is this on? Just checking. Uh, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. 
Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Thanks, Lisa M. These are really tough words, aren't they? So this is a parable a little bit like one we looked at two weeks ago. And in it, there is a king who most of the original heroes would have understood to be the emperor or Caesar, someone with incredible wealth, incredible power and influence. And one day, uh, one of his servants goes to see him. And when we think of servants, we might think of, you know, like a butler or a, um, a maid or something like that. Well, that's probably not what this parable is telling us about. It's actually that the servant could have been as high up as a regional ruler or a king, somebody like King Herod, somebody who conducted business on behalf of the emperor himself. And he went to see the king because he had racked up through either mismanagement or corruption, we don't know what, such a big debt that he simply just could not pay. There was no way to repay the debt to the king. And he falls on his knees, realizing that he's in really big trouble. The astonishing thing about this parable, as as Lisa Ann just just read it, is that what happens is that the king, the emperor, says, not only do you not need to pay back this debt, but I will pay it. I will take it on my shoulders. I forgive you. You are completely free to go. The debt is dealt with. And then this, this regional guy, he goes out into the community and he finds one of his servants who owes him some money, not as much, but still a significant amount. And, and the, he says to the guy, like, I want the money that, that you owe me. And this servant says, I'm, I'm so sorry, like, I, I just can't pay it back. It's, it's too much. Give me more time. But even though this regional guy, he's been shown grace, even though he's been shown mercy, even though he's been shown forgiveness and he's completely been set free, he will not show mercy He will not show grace. He will not show forgiveness. In fact, he grabs hold of this guy and he throws him into prison. And then we hear these astonishing, challenging, awful, beautiful words in verse 33 from the king. Shouldn't you, he says to the regional guy, have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owned. This... This is how my heavenly father will treat you unless you forgive your brother and sister from your heart. These are some of the hardest words, I think, in the whole Bible. Now, these are not words, it should be clear, about money specifically. You'll be glad the this generosity series is done for now. We're not talking about money. These are words about forgiveness. These are words about grace. And they tell us that forgiveness is not an optional extra in the Christian life. It is the very heart of who we are as Christians because you see, the Christian story is a story of forgiveness. The Christian story tells us that each one of us, through the things we do, through the things we say, through the things that we fail to do, actually each one of us sins, and we don't like that word very much, but we do stuff all the time which is less than God's best which is affected by the brokenness in the world, by the evil that we see around us. Every single day we do stuff, and that stuff that we do and we don't do, actually it creates this debt, this problem, this stuff that requires justice, it requires fixing. And when we get in front of a God who is the ultimate king, and above all things, who is holy and righteous, when we come before him, actually there is a problem. And the problem is is that we don't measure up, and the debt is so huge that we can't pay it. But why I love being a Christian, 
why being a Christian is so totally different from every other religion or thought pattern or philosophy is because amazingly when we get on our knees before the creator of the universe and we actually acknowledge that we have this problem called sin, this debt that is impossibly big to pay, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, this is what he says, I, I will pay it for you. I will pay your debt. I will take your shame. I will take your sin. I will take your guilt. I will take the things that you did in the past. I will take the things that you did now. And I'm going to take the things that you might do in the future. And I do want, I'm going to pay it by putting it on the cross. And you know, I'm going to pay it even though it's, probably, it's ultimately going to cost my son his life. I will pay it because I love you that much. I will forgive you. And I will forgive you and I will forgive you over and over again. And that is the story of the Christian life, is that when we get on our knees in front of God, God amazingly says, you don't have to pay it, it's too much for you, I love you so much, I am gonna pay the very debt for you, you can go and be free. We get, we get mercy, which is not getting what we deserve, which is punishment and pain for the sins with my brokenness we have. And instead what we get is grace, which is this incredible new life, this fresh beginnings, the first chance, the second chance, the third chance, the fourth chance. Every time we muck it up, God's grace covers us and we get to do that. And and I want to say to you this morning, if you do not know what it means to be forgiven and free by the creator of the universe, don't leave, please don't leave this morning before having a chance to get on your knees and give him your life and allowing him to wipe out your pain and your debt. But you see, that is because that's what it means to be a Christian, to be somebody who was ultimately forgiven the most incredible, huge debt of our lives. That means, like this parable, that we have absolutely no ability, no right to hold pain and debt over anybody else. That we cannot hold forgiveness, unforgiveness over anybody else because we are people who are forgiven. Now, I know that is brutally hard. And sometimes when we think, you know, some of us, when we think of unforgiveness, the kind of thing we're thinking about is, man, that guy cut me up on the 210 this morning and that sucked. Some of us, when we think about forgiveness, we're thinking about abuse, we're thinking about violence, we're thinking about neglect, we're thinking about things that have been done to us which actually are so painful and so hard and I'm not in any way like making a light of those brutal, hard, horrible things which are not okay. But what I am saying is that forgiveness is not an optional extra in the Christian life. Because we are people who have been forgiven so astonishingly much that actually forgiveness is required of us. And if we say, well, actually we don't think we can forgive that person, then if we're really honest, what we're probably saying is actually we don't fully understand this dynamic of grace and forgiveness that has been poured out in our life if we think that we don't need to forgive the people who are around us. And it's hard, isn't it? And it's horrible, but it is the truth of of the gospel. But we also have to forgive because ultimately if we don't forgive, what we start to do is bring toxicity and brokenness in our life and we become less like the creator of the universe and we become more like the very most broken things. As Frederick Boitner says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savior to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain that you're giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. But the chief drawback is that you are wolfing, the feast that you are wolfing down is yourself. 
the skeleton at the feast is you. You see, like if, when we hold unforgiveness, as someone else said, it's, it's a little bit like making this cocktail of amazing poison for your enemy and then just drinking it yourself. And as we do that, what we breed into our lives is bitterness and rage and anger. And we allow it to take hold in our lives until we become less and less like the very one who died to save us and more and more like the enemy of him himself. Forgiveness is not given to us as an optional extra, but as a prerequisite of the Christian life. So what does it actually mean to forgive someone? When verse 27, we get the answer to that. It says, the servant's master, the king, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Just look at these three little words with me. The first one is this, he took pity on him. Now, I've realized that is a bad English translation. When you hear the take pity on it, it sounds a little bit like, as I discovered this little phrase since I've been in the US, bless his soul, or bless his heart, which I've discovered is the harshest thing that anybody can actually say to somebody else in America. It's the most aggressive, passive-aggressive phrase, isn't it? That's an awful phrase. So that, that is not what, what is being said here. This is not a looking down on the person in sympathy. Actually, to take pity literally is a translation of have compassion or to allow your heart to go out to someone. It's to see how the other person sees. How easy is it you know, when we look at somebody else and, and we, we see their actions and they do something or they say something or we hear that they've said something. What we actually do is we go like, oh, that, that person. That person must be trying to get me. That person must be trying to attack me. And what we do is we go, well, if they did that, if they said that, then maybe actually they're that kind of person. And if they believe that about that one thing, which I have not asked them about yet, but I've just decided must be a terrible thing, then probably what happens is that they also believe that, and they believe that, and they believe that, and and actually they must be that type of person, and if they're that type of person, they're probably not even a Christian anymore and we abandon our relationship with them. How many times over the last couple of years have we seen people just like walking out of their relationships with other brothers and sisters of Christ because of something that they have perceived to be happened when actually what we realize is this first step in forgiveness is actually to have the heart of the other person. It's to feel what they feel. It's to go to them and understand where they might actually be coming from. Not to feel superior, not to cancel them, but to share the heart of the other person. The second thing is that the king cancels the debt. And what what is astonishing about this passage is actually the size of the regional servant's debt. Now, a denarii was something like a day's wage. So it's quite a lot of money. And so an average annual wage would have been about 300 denarii. Now, one talent, which is what we're talking about, he talks about those bags of gold, but one talent was, was probably something around um, 10,000 denarii. So it's a lot. The 10,000 denarii, which is what it's the debt in this thing, is something, scholars think, somewhere between a billion and a trillion dollars. Right? Even by COVID debt standards, that's a lot of money. Right? That's a lot. It's an un- impossible sum of money. We don't know if it's happened because the regional guy has been dishonest. We don't know if it's through corruption. We don't know if it's just mismanagement. But we do know this is an astonishing amount. But yet, what does the king do? He pays the debt himself. 
You know, when somebody wrongs you, when somebody hurts you, when somebody slaps you in the face or cuts you up in traffic or owes you money or whatever it does, there's always a debt. There's always some sort of thing that has to be done to repair the problem. There is a loss, and because there's a loss, somebody has to pay for the loss, right? Either we make the other person pay for the loss, right? You owe me. You need to fix this problem. You need to pay me back for the wrong that you did to me, or I'm going to punish you to be even eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, wherever it's, I'm going to make you pay. Whether it's money, reputation, ego, status, or we pay. And actually, when we forgive someone, the reality is usually that we have to pay. We pay when we refuse to hit back. When Jesus says someone strikes you on a cheek, what should you do? Turn the other cheek. Who paid the penalty? We paid the penalty. When you refuse to speak badly of somebody, even though they speak badly of you, that has a cost and you pay. When you refuse to put them down or slander them or even like justify yourself, you pay and it's really hard. But amazingly, as we pay, as we forgive, as we release people from the debts that they hold to us, then actually our heart starts to change. It starts to soften. We start to breathe grace and mercy and life into our beings. So we have to be able to do that. We have to cancel the debt. And then finally, thirdly, we, we have, he let him go. And that is an astonishing thing. The king, at the risk to his own kingdom, I and mean, this is a trillion dollars, right? So it's not like you can just write the debt off and go, it doesn't matter, it's not important, it doesn't make any difference. No, somebody has to pay the debt, but actually, amazingly, what this king does is he lets the other guy go. He just says, you can go. You don't have to worry about it anymore. You don't have to come back to this place. You don't have to come back to this moment. It's done, it's finished with, it's all over. In contrast with this regional guy, when he goes out and he finds this third servant who's got a debt to him, what does he do? He grabs hold of him. He will not let him go. He throws him into prison saying, you owe me, I am not going to let this go. I am not going to allow you to move on from this moment until I believe that you have fully paid for all the things you do. I am going to hold on to this. And How easy is it for us to hold on to the wounds that people have done to us, right? To replay them over and over, to almost enjoy the replaying of them, to thinking about them, to feel like you're a victim, to feel like, oh, this is what I'm going to do one day when I get my chance. I'm going to pay them back. But to forgive is to let people go. Now, this is a huge deal, and I go back, and I'm just going to keep saying, some of us, it's it's about the 210, others of us, it's about abuse, and those are not the same things. Some of us, it's not a big thing. Others of us, it's a huge life-changing thing. But I believe so passionately, and this is what the Lord I think has been talking to me about, is that we cannot ever allow this to enter into the church. If unforgiveness gets into the life of a church, it's catastrophic. It's game over. It's a technique that the enemy has been using for 2,000 years to distract, to destroy, to pull Christians apart, to make sure that relationships break down and make sure that churches never flourish. It didn't just happen. It's been happening for 2,000 years. You know, just soon, soon after Jesus came to earth, there was one church. And then after that, there was an East and a West church because they didn't like each other very much and they fell out. And then in, in the 1500s, this guy called Martin Luther turned up. He was a Benedictine monk. 
And he, he, um, he nailed uh, his 99th thesis on the door of the castle in Wittenberg, and what he was seeking to do was bring transformation and reformation from within inside the Catholic Church. But unintentionally, what he actually ended up doing was sparked a whole reformation and birth of all these different kinds of churches like Anglican churches and Methodist churches and Baptist churches and Lutheran churches and Calvinist churches and Presbyterian churches and all these kind of churches. And I'm not saying that that wasn't necessary, and I'm not saying that that wasn't important, but it's really interesting that if you look at the last 500 years, we've gone from, we went from one church to two churches. Now, of the last 500 years, we've gone from two churches to something like 38,000 different churches, church denominations around the world. Now, I'm not saying that church denominations don't get formed for really good reasons. But I can tell you honestly, from when you've been within the structures of churches for very long, you realize that a lot of church denominations are actually started because people had unforgiveness issues in their heart and they were unable to resolve their differences and they fell out. I'm just being honest. I did a little bit of Googling this week because one of the things that's really amused me since I've been here is how in one town you can get like a first Baptist church and a second Baptist church and a third Baptist church. And that's nothing against the Baptist church, by the way. I was born a Baptist. Um, but but I, I did a bit of Googling because I was interested to find which town in the US has the most, has, a, has like the highest number. And I found a small town in America, which I won't tell you where it is, which has a sixth Baptist church. Like I have no idea what was wrong with the first five Baptist churches. The, the, the guy had to go, well, we're going to be the sixth because the sixth is going to be the best Baptist church. I have no idea where that came from. But what I do believe, and I'm being deadly serious, is that actually I think that every time these sorts of divisions happen, it grieves the heart of the Lord desperately. It grieves his heart because he's so much less than it was God's desire for his people to operate in. You know that God pray, Jesus prayed for you before he went to the cross. He prayed for you in John's gospel when he said, my prayer is not for them alone, which is his disciples, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, which is us, by the way, that all of them may be, I don't know, smart, clever, right, beautiful, healthy. No, that's not what he prayed for you. He prayed that we would be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that, and this is the thing that kicks my butt, the world may believe that you have sent me. How is the world going to know that Jesus is real? By the way that the church chooses to love each other and hold unity together. If the church, therefore, can't hold unity together, then we have no reason to complain that the world doesn't want to know anything about Jesus. It's that blunt. The relationships that we hold are absolutely absolutely fundamental to what it means to follow a Jesus. But yeah, you know, I feel we are in this critical moment as churches around the world. You know, as I talk to my friends, you know, so many of them do want to say like, Ben, well, I, I used to be part of a church. I used to be with those people, but I just have just experienced too much. I've experienced too much hurt. I've experienced too much pain. I've experienced too much heartache, too much disagreement. And actually, therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to like step back and what I'm going to do is turn my spiritual life into something that I can do on my own terms. And I have so many friends who are saying, well, right now it's just easier to avoid the pain. I'm going to just do an online thing. I'm going to find my, my favorite voices, 
my favorite voices, my favorite preacher from there or my favorite worship leader from there and I'm gonna find this and I'm gonna find that and I'm gonna just tune in and I'm gonna do it. And, and those are fine in the sense that it's a gift to the world that we can do that and access all these people for free and they have a place. But I gotta tell you something really important. Those people do not know you. Right, That amazing superstar pastor is not your pastor because he does not know you. The other people who are tuning on the live stream are not your brothers and sisters because they don't know you. They don't know you well enough to be able to stand next to you when you're in tears and you are broken and hold you accountable for the things that are going on in your life. They're not gonna be there at, like, at the funeral of one of your close family members like Victor's community group were here with him yesterday at the funeral of his dad. They're not going to do it because they don't know you. You need people in your life who you know you, who love you, who will stand alongside you in all that you are facing in life and hold you accountable and walk the journey with you. Because if you don't have those people, the world might just take you out. And I didn't just make that up as some pitch to kind of try and boost church attendance. I didn't. But when you look at the early church, the thing that was true of the early church when it was full of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was this. All the believers were together. And they held everything in common. And I'm just going to say, I know it's so risky. Relationships are flipping risky. Like some of you come to church this morning and you have been burned by churches. You have walked in churches and you have opened up your heart and people have abused that and they've hurt you. And I wanna just say this morning, that is not okay. It's not okay when you've seen the fall from grace of church leaders who have failed to uphold the calling on their lives. That is not okay. But to choose this moment to walk away from churches and turn church into some Christianity, into some private club will not help you in the years that are to come. To take your burning hot coal and take it out of the life of other believers and put it on the side and just put it into some context where you know you think I'm gonna set the whole world alight with my little coal. Yeah, it might happen, but it also might just be that your coal goes out over the years to come. And that would be heartbreaking and difficult. So I don't actually mind if it's this church or another church, but you need brothers and sisters in your life who will stand with you and walk with you the journey of faith. And I also just want to say this, because some of, sometimes you know, I talk to people and they're like, I'm just, I'm just waiting for the perfect church. Like, this church has got great worship, but their teaching is not quite what I want. This church has got great teaching, but their worship band are not good looking enough. You know, this church have got good, that's a joke. This church have got like great prayer ministry, but I'm not quite sure about these things, or I'm not sure if I fit in really well with the political views of these guys or this guy or whatever it might be. And I just want to say to you, like, please, please don't wait to find the perfect church before you find a community of believers. Because number one, you'll never find it. And you'll just get disappointed after six months of being in a church when you realize that they're just as broken as every other church. But also, if you do find the perfect church, please don't join it, because you'll ruin it. <laughs> I mean, they've got it all sorted out. They've got the dynamics sorted. All the relationships are fine and you're going to join it and you're just going to screw everything up. So probably best just to leave them alone, right? All you can do is you can find a community of people who you can choose to commit your lives, to stand alongside, to support, to love, to care for, to be with and to worship Jesus with so that you can walk the story of whatever happens over the years to come. And I think that's the challenge of this time. Will we make choices in our families, in our individual lives, in our church communities to go all in 
or are we going to commodify, turn it into consumer sport, and walk away? So how, how do we do it? What do we do if we do have these relationships in our lives which are broken? And I know some of us have some huge wounds that we have got to deal with. Well, let me just look for the last couple of minutes, just really briefly, at what Jesus has to say also in Matthew 18. A little bit earlier in the chapter, he says this. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over, but if they won't listen to you, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So let's just look at it for quickly, just for a minute. Okay, so if you have something against another brother, so another Christian brother or sister, what's the first thing you need to do? Go and see them. Right? How easy is it when somebody like, offends you to walk away? It's the cultural norm that we live in. Cancel culture. Like, we're out of here. No thanks very much. Right? Go and see the person. Hear them. Listen to them. Actually, the words kind of win them over is kind of the same words that's used for evangelize to them. Like, speak to them from your heart about the things that you are feeling and you are hearing and are hurting you so that you might be reconciled, win them over, so that there might be a relationship comes. If you can't do that, what do you do? Step two, walk away, cancel them? No. Take somebody else, another brother or sister with you, so that actually there might be some sort of like mediation, so that actually together you might be able to discuss and debate and hear from an impartial perspective, because guess what? It might be that you're wrong. It might not even be that, that they're wrong. Take someone else. If that doesn't work, cancel them? No. If that doesn't work, then go and find someone from the church. Maybe someone who's a little bit more mature. Go and take it to them and see if you can resolve it. And, and then, and only then, after all of those steps of trying everything you possibly can to reconcile the relationship, then, then you get to do this final step, which is to treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, but just be really clear, Jesus loved pagans and tax collectors. He loved them a lot. The final step is not an excuse for you now to then, I tried everything, it doesn't work, I'm going to vilify that person. No, it's to choose to love them but recognize that there might actually have to be a little bit of space for the health of the future of the relationship. That that is genuine, that that is okay. Now, just be really clear, for some of us, you know, I'm not, you know, if you're in a, a situation of imminent danger or abuse, I'm not saying, Jesus is not saying, go straight back into the situation and see if you can fix it. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what he is saying is that the, it's unacceptable for us just to give up and walk away without having gone through this on normal day-to-day -day things. Because the enemy will lie to you. He will trick you. That's what he's trying to be doing his whole of human history is to trick people into to believing the wrong thing about other people, about who he is. But the invitation is that we have to choose to try and do the hard work to understand. And I think this is, this is our, our challenge because I, I believe, and I'm not one for kind of like looking negatively at the world at all, but I, I do see around me, around the world, I watch the devil trying to just break down relationships, break apart churches, break about families, turning faith into this kind of private sense of commodity where we just feel like we ultimately have no choice but to find people who already agree with everything we agree with. But yeah, I think the invitation to the kingdom of God is so much more. It's so much bigger. It's so much better. When he invited you into his kingdom, Jesus actually also invited you into his family. 
He invited you to stand with your brothers and sisters to be part of this messy, broken, risky thing called the global church. And I just want to invite you this morning, if you, you know, if maybe you've just arrived at church and this is like, man, this is the first time I've been in church for a long time because I've been so out of it and so hurt. And I just want to say, like, welcome home. It's great to see you. Maybe, you know, you've been on, online for a long time and you haven't quite got back into kind of any sort of physical sense of gathering and it's not a comment about safety or anything like that. But I want to say at some point, please, would you, please, would you find some brothers and sisters in Christ? who are gonna walk with you, who know you, who love you, who will stand alongside you because, because actually to be a community of believers is to be known, is to be loved, is to be in relationship even when it hurts you, even when it might be painful. And that's the kingdom of God. And I believe that if we will make those kind of tough choices now that God will do amazing things to birth churches and movements and networks and people's lives will be transformed. But I know that the enemy will always try and work against it. So can we pray together?